0: This is David Marler, UFO researcher and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am joined today by an author and researcher. Previous books include Chasing Ghosts and The Big Book of Mars. Here to discuss his new book just released on the 17th 17th of October worldwide titled We Are Not Alone, Mr. Mark Hartsman. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hey Andy, thanks for having me on. appreciate it. Very good to finally get you on too, uh, and hello to all the folks on YouTube seeing the new full HD camera, hi, people have been requesting it for a while, so this is the face, sorry about that. Um, listen Mark, but this this is all about you, um, I want to kick off lots of things to discuss with the new book We Are Not Alone, but what's your background first and foremost, because looking through the website weirdhistorian.com, your previous titles that you've worked on,
1: what's kind of led you to this point in your life you're writing about UFOs? I think it's all been leading right up to it to be honest. So, um yeah, I've run a website called weirdhistorian.com and I I love just all the sort of weird pages of history, the stranger sides of things. And and I've loved that since I was a kid, really. Um you mentioned chasing ghosts and the big book of mars, but even books I did before that, I've written about sideshow performers, I've written about Oliver Cromwell's embalmed head and its travels for 300 years, weird things on eBay. Um so I I just love these sort of stranger like I said you know the weirder pages of history really. Um in terms of UFOs I mean it's something that I I also enjoyed reading about as a kid and was fascinated by. And then when I wrote the big book of Mars I had I had touched on the UFO subject a little bit because obviously there is some belief that you know early UFO signs might be from Martians um coming to earth to you know investigate or concerns about our atomic age. So these were some of those early beliefs in the late 40s and early 1950s. So I had written about Roswell a little bit and some other um, instances around that same period. But of course, there was so much more to talk about in the subject. So after after doing Chasing Ghost, um, I decided I want to dive more into the UFO subject. And so that's what uh, We Are Not Alone, like I said, just came out. Um, Here's That looks like beautiful hardcover book, lots of images inside. Um, But yeah, it was great to just really kind of dive in and explore the subject in a much broader way than I could with the Mars book.
0: Normally, I I like to have a copy of the guest book, but given it was just coming out, I got the PDF from you. So folks will be used to me saying, here's a copy as well, and it'll be on that pile eventually. (laughs) I'm going to pick up a copy of the physical book as well. And this isn't even something I've wrote down to ask you, but in looking through the PDF, are you a fan of Wes Anderson, the director
1: of Wes Anderson Movies? I, I like I I've seen a bunch of his movies and yeah, they're they're beautiful. I mean that the art direction is always so
0: that's so what the interesting layout the layout of the book reminded me of. That kinda of quirky the, the colours yeah. even and I've just seen Asteroid City quite recently and it just oh, reminded me of that. that sort of layout and yeah, and obviously UFO subject and all, but I just wondered if that was deliberate, but just something I noticed and thought, I wonder if that's in there for that reason.
1: Yeah, no, Quirk, um, it's funny you said Quirky. The publisher is Quirk Books, and they they have just a beautiful design aesthetic. I mean, I you know, just I'll try and flip through here a little bit just so people can see, but um, it's great. I mean, they give me such a chance to put so much imagery in. I mean, things like this, I could just touch on really quick. These came from... Um, if you know uh, David Marler, he runs a, a UFO archive. Uh, I do. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So I, I spent a few days with him down outside of Albuquerque. And I mean, this is, you know, this is coming straight from from his files. This is uh, about the Socorro case, you know, a, a, an image of a diorama that was made, which I'd never seen anywhere before. Um, and then the actual uh, Project Blue Book cards, I got a few of those that are included in the book, like the, the actual physical card, not just a scan that's online or something. So having the like physical pieces that relate to cases um, is one thing I was really excited to be able to include in the book uh, from a range of cases. It's nice seeing that as you go
0: through, It's not. it's not just a picture book by any means, but it's so well broken up and very well presented that I'm not just blowing smoke up your arse because I wouldn't just say that. It's very, very nicely put together. And I know Dan, who puts together the thumbnail for me, incorporated some of that art into the thumbnail and he was a fan of the way it was presented as well. So whoever done that, they've done a very good job on on that for you. Um, When did you start writing this particular book? Because coincidentally, Mark, you must know it's a hell of a time for a UFO book to come out. (laughs) You're hot on the heels of congressional hearings, UFO documentaries on Netflix, and a whole host of stories. Has it just been a pleasant timing for you?
1: Yeah, it has been. <laughs> it definitely worked out nicely. I mean, I started this book I'd say just over two years ago. So probably around summer of 2021, really got going with with writing on it. Um, so I guess that was like just after the that first report to to Congress. Um, from the Pentagon. And I think that was June 2021 if I remember correctly the date. So um so you know certainly it's been a topic that's been you know getting more and more attention nationally and with a more serious um, uh, angle to it, you know, which has been great. You know the stigma is going away which I think has been hugely helpful to learning and understanding more about the whole phenomena. So the timing was good I think at the beginning but it's it's only gotten better and better with all the stories going on and the continued congressional hearings have been happening Um, so it's it's definitely been you know really (laughs) really quite a relief to have all the news out there about this subject right now
0: yeah so the book takes us through I couldn't work out is it it's almost an ode to an encyclopedia and a bit of a step-by-step guide to the UFO subject and the history of the subject all kind of woven into one. It's, it's really, honestly, I was pleasantly surprised when I went through it, Um, especially when it's not someone who is a hardcore UFO guy. If I can say that, presenting, here's all the UFO stuff I know. And I, I really liked that about it. it. Had a bit of a charm to it. And it starts off taking you through the journey from roswell up to modern day present day with the government side of things but going back to that the kind of start of the book then did any of your research take you to much before roswell it's the birth of the modern ufo phenomenon 1947 but when you were doing your digging was there ever an idea for an earlier chapter where you were going to go back even further or did you think it has to be the you know the kind of mid-40s uh
1: no there was actually um I do I do in the the finished book, I do go a little bit earlier uh, back to like the Battle of Los Angeles in uh, 42 um, and then some of the uh, the Foo Fighters around World War Two. So I get into some of that as well just to kind of show, hey, it didn't exactly start with with Kenneth Arnold in in 47. There was stuff happening before that. Um, So I did touch on that. And then I actually did have a a whole first chapter that we ended up um, cutting when we were doing edits that was more about ancient history. And some of that is kind of spread out. We, we salvaged some of that and spread some of that throughout the book. So we still yeah. touch on some of those early, early thoughts that could be, you know, a UFO phenomena, not mm-hmm. to say that people thought it was UFO then, but it's looking back. Could that have been what people were experiencing um, written about or des- described in their own language of the time? So some of that goes back to the Bible. Of course, there's there's lots of books on um, UFOs in the Bible, right? Uh, yeah, I actually see UFO and God. Uh, right behind you there. <laughs> so yeah, Chris really book. A, Yeah, so there's. Um, I definitely touched on some of that, uh, some of the thoughts about like, um, you know, the pyramids and things like this. Was those ancient alien types of mm-hmm. theories? So, so I get into some of that, but um, but not as as thoroughly as I had at one point in the book.
0: And I wonder, going through it, it references obviously the times, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s did popular culture for you as you're researching this and from what you've experienced massively reflect on how people viewed the ufo subject at the time
1: yeah i mean i think it kind of kind of did i mean some so much of that in pop culture was was i think you know kind of related i mean maybe maybe more sophisticated in ways though just depends on what movies you're thinking of i suppose i mean certainly there's plenty of b movies where i could say yeah it did reflect it with like meaning venusians and martians and things like that and traveling well, spaceships and that's, planets
0: that's what i'm thinking some of the lines we are talking uh about uh i've got the gentleman's name gabriel green and yes. in the 60s yeah. and i've got i'm going to ask you to, to talk about that in a second but talking about venusians and martians coming here collaborating connecting with the human race that notion now seems very old school doesn't it that people are coming or aliens are coming from local planets and it's just moved on to a whole different conversation
1: yeah definitely and and i was i was gonna say the reason i was saying like some it depends on which pop culture you're thinking of because like 2001 to me you know late that to me holds up really beautifully actually but but the the more fun b-movie type stuff yeah it's it was such a different atmosphere at that time i mean that i have a a pretty nice section uh, on the contactees of the 1950s and early Mm -hmm. 60s. The people, like you mentioned, Gabriel Green, which we can talk about more, but, you know, um, George Adamski and and, uh, Daniel uh, Fry, uh, some of these other guys who claim to have met Venusians and flown in spaceships and wrote these books on them. I have, I'm blocking them with my chair, but I got a whole shelf full of these books that I love. I love the titles and I loved, I think I mentioned this in the book. I loved how they actually, um, they actually try to one up each other. It felt like mm-hmm. like I met him. I'll see if I can find it really quick, the, the page in the book, but you know, I met a Martian and I, or I met a Venusian and then I, I flew to Venus. I, I met a Venusian wife and then I had a Venusian family. Someone wrote a book like I've been to the moon, to Mars and Venus, you know? So it was like, how can we keep uh, one upping it? Here's, oh yeah, here's a, here's a page, for example, some of these great book covers. This is the one I just mentioned. My trip to Mars, the moon and Venus. It might be a little, a little dark to read from the, the video, but i i love that whole era mm-hmm. um it's definitely like you said the thoughts has changed drastically because we know there aren't people um on mars in venus we might still find like some microorganisms on the surface or in the atmosphere of venus that so life might exist still but certainly not like what they were describing it looks exactly like us but usually better looking versions of us um so those stories are, are certainly kind of um odd and unusual, but the message that they were giving, I always thought was really interesting about the warnings of the atomic age and the dangers we -hmm. have to ourselves. These people were almost like these kind of cult leaders. They would have lectures and they would have, you know, um, you know, like conventions where people come out and hear them speak and, uh, and they would preach this message, which, you know, knowing that they weren't really seeing Venusians, but the idea of preaching the dangers of the atomic age is certainly a, a positive message and a good thing. But what I find interesting about all that also is that you also have the fact that they're doing that and they're so vocal about it and it becomes, to me, that's where a lot of the stigma comes in about UFOs. Like, you don't want to be associated with the guys who said they met the Venusians. Yeah. And so that starts to push like serious scientists away. Like, I can't, I can't be associated with this flying saucer crowd, the UFO crowd. And you have this massive gap of scientists sort of seriously taking an interest. I mean, of course you do have, you know, Jay and Hynek with Blue Book looking into things and um, James McDonald, but, but for the most part, you know, scientists are kind of pushed away from this. Uh, and that's drastically changed now, which I think is amazing. Um, I'm jumping ahead a lot. You know, maybe steering away from your question. I no, that's right. And
0: I, and I was going to ask, because that, that was my next question on modern modern culture, reflecting that for for quite a while now, and particularly right now, we're in a really heightened state of, you know, international tension. And do you think the way the UFO subject, and I only, only thought of this today, the way it's moved more into a military connection is because of that heightened international state of tension? You know, that's why we're hearing so much more about the Department of Defense, the the gimbal, the flare video, the tic-tac pictures that are all in the book. Is that why we've got that now? And it's just a reflection of, you know, back then it was the Cold War and um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we're
1: just in a, a modern version of that now. You know, that that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think what's a little different now is I think Back then, the government was looking into things, but they would they would always have an explanation for something um, or they would not acknowledge that it was a case. Like if you look Mm. at some of the sightings over nuclear sites in the 60s, the government didn't say, yes, there was a UFO there and we don't know what it is. Yeah, they just they just pushed it aside or didn't want people to talk about it. I find it quite different now that the government is actually acknowledging that there are UAPs. You know, I like that they changed the language to get away from the stigma that we were just talking about. Um, but they're acknowledging the fact that they don't know that there's, they don't know what is flying overhead, like the pilots are seeing something and we don't know what they are. And to me, that's a pretty amazing admission for them to make. Um, so I, to me, that's a little bit different. I don't know that, that the state of the world is causing them to see it. I mean, I feel like if, if, uh, if it was like, if the idea was that they were actually here because of the state of the world that hopefully that they would do something, um, especially right about now would be nice to see some intervention. But I think, um, I think what's amazing is that we're, we're taking it seriously now um, as opposed to back then. And now you have real scientists looking into it. I I think I talked to Avi Loeb and I wrote about that in the book and I love what he's doing with the Galileo project because he's a unique figure that has amazing scientific credibility and resources. And now he's getting funding and that is allowing, you know, when I spoke to him, we about, had about a hundred scientists working with him, yeah. but he's attracting scientists who feel okay about looking into the subject now and researching it openly. Um, and so he's collecting his own data and then he can start to learn from that data. He doesn't have to wait for the government to give him whatever they might give him, you know, or any of that kind of issue that, that's been experienced in the past. So I think it's it's an amazing time when Scientists are taking a serious look at it. You know, NASA's obviously looking at it too. They haven't, you know, their last uh, meeting they had, there was nothing new to report other than maybe some thoughts on what some of the other UAPs were. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting time to maybe learn something new finally. Now they can be looked at more seriously.
0: Well, let me drag you back, kicking and screaming to the 60s and uh, talk about Gabriel Green for a few minutes because that was a case and someone... I didn't really know much about. Um, Can you tell the listeners just a little bit about who he was and how he tried to extraordinarily run for president on the back of the UFO ticket?
1: Yeah, yeah, i got to show the picture. I just found the page as you were talking. So this is uh, an actual ad from a newspaper that he placed. Gabriel Green, um, America needs a space-age president. And uh, the text here is pretty small, but but, uh, for the most part, it, it is pretty readable. Um, but he describes the fact that, uh, basically this was one of these guys, a contactee who said spacemen came down to him and said that they wanted him to run for president. And, yeah. uh, and so he did, um, he got on the ticket, he was on for like a few months and this was 1960. So he was going up against John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, yeah. um, which was, you know, he didn't have much of a chance. No, that's some, that's <laughs> so, some heavy hitters politically. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he he has a, a lot of good things in here. He says he wants a workable plan for peace rather than directionless confusion, hope and national purpose instead of apathy and hopelessness. So he he promised a lot of you know, good things that I guess he thought the spacemen, as he referred to them, would help him achieve. Because clearly at that time, the idea was all these um, people from space had achieved a certain level of uh, enlightenment that we had yet to achieve here on Earth. Um, so maybe they could help us find a better way forward as well. So yeah, so he had this campaign, um, ran for a short while and uh eventually, you know, that uh it didn't go anywhere. He dropped out. He endorsed Kennedy. Um, of course, Kennedy at least he got us to the moon, so there's a little, little bit of a space progress there <laughs> that from his endorsement. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty fun story that that he literally ran for president. Um and then uh I also have in 1972 he ran again. And uh he ran under the I think it was the Universal ticket. And he had Daniel W. Fry as his running mate, who I mentioned earlier, who was a guy who one of the first people to claim to have ridden in the flying saucer. Yeah.
0: And and do you know what? That's it's it was viewed at the time as something that really encouraged the stigma. People who would come out and say they had ridden on flying saucers, they had spoken to, as you say, spacemen from Venus, Mars, local planetary bodies, okay? And we don't get too dissimilar now, but it seems to be, at this point in time, taken much more seriously. I've got Grant Cameron's book, UFO Sky Pilots. We hear about folks who say they've piloted craft. It's got a lot more complex, a lot more complicated. People talk about consciousness being how these uh, crafts are piloted and speaking to other spirits from far, far, far away planets and planetary bodies. But the idea is still there. But as you say, it's nice to see that that conversation can be had, but with that stigma being removed, I can't see anyone, though, like a Gabriel Green running for president now because th- well, <laughs> the stigma is reduced, Mark, I feel that that's maybe a push too far. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't think he'd uh, have much success, <laughs> but um, but it is interesting just going back to that time when we just had so much less knowledge about the plants closest to us, right? And so you could project ideals onto those plants because they were close and, and we didn't really know for sure and now that we have more information we project further and further you know further out into space um, which is which is such a fascinating discussion really of the what could be because um, there is so much possibility and I, I have a there's a whole chapter in the book that gets into more scientific efforts um, which covers which covers kind of a a brief history of early um, astronomical beliefs. Um, some of the early beliefs in Martians and things like that. Cause to me, it's all like a chain of events that one leads to another and inspires future generations of thought and so forth. But you get up to, I get up to SETI and Frank Drake, who had the, the Drake equation, which estimated the number of intelligent civilizations in the, in the galaxy, which he had a, a high number um, in his estimate, although he didn't believe that they could get here due to the distances between um, solar systems and worlds and so forth which is massive i mean i i think about those numbers you know a light year is six trillion plus miles we talk about exoplanets you know thousands of, of light years away it's hard to fathom covering that distance At the same time who knows you know um if there are a thousand years ahead of us it's, can't even imagine what they what might be possible so it keeps the conversation interesting uh so there's there's a lot of I think fascinating thought around there. I also talk about another planetary scientist who explores the idea of the Drake Equation and the number of intelligent civilizations that might exist within the galaxy. And he has a a less optimistic number based on certain things like things that I think most of us don't really think about. You know, you think of like the number of stars, and there's you know hundreds of billions of stars. That's a lot. The numbers are huge, so you got to figure the odds that something is living out there seems like you know should be in our favor. For life, but he talks about things like gamma ray bursts, which happen more in the center of the galaxy or on the edge of the galaxy, which is safer. And the gamma ray burst, like it, it, these huge explosions, like imagine all the power of our sun exploding within the timeline of like 24 hours. Like all that power wipes out anything in its way. So if if planets had life, they'd just be gone. You know, it would wipe out before maybe it could get to where we are beyond. Or so so these kinds of things happen across the galaxy, which starts to eliminate some of those those opportunities and and impossibilities. So again, just gets into like different things to think about that maybe people don't always consider when they're thinking about the vastness of space, the possibility. Um, But again, I think it just kind of adds more to the conversation and the imagination.
0: I agree. I had um, Nadia Drake, who is Frank Drake's uh, daughter, on the podcast a couple of months Mm. ago. She's been part of the NASA panel, who has put together the independent study on UAP. And it was a controversial guest. She was lovely to speak to, and I, I enjoyed that. But as a scientist who doesn't come at the UFO subject from a, I'm a believer, and there's aliens out there, she tried to really approach it very pragmatically. And for her there still seemed to be a massive lack of of real tangible scientific evidence. And that frustrated a lot of people. But I think, like you say, you have to look at both sides of the argument. You can't just go into this full pelt, you know, 100% there is something because I believe it. You have to allow other scientists to come in and say, but it might not be the case because of X, Y and Z. But that's where if real scientists can get involved on both sides of the argument, they can discuss, they can debate they can present their reasons and maybe you can move on from that point rather than that kind of constant infighting. And I welcome any scientist or academic who wants to come into the subject and and have that conversation. Did you find it easy in your research to speak to scientists, journalists, academics on the topic who maybe weren't UFO centric, shall we say?
1: Um, So it was, it was interesting. I think in some cases it was, it was easy. I, you know, I was able to do it without an issue in other cases i had to maybe overcome a hurdle or two which was interesting so i'll describe that but i had the the one scientist i mentioned his name is pascal lee who had the thought about like you know maybe a more limited answer he believes that that we might be it in terms of an intelligent species in this in this galaxy um that's that's on a big one-page
0: quote i remember reading that within the book and it's that scary thought of we put paraphrase you know that we might be it and that's a horrible daunting thought just in itself um so yeah but sorry if I interrupted but yeah that was a, a lovely yeah. piece
1: yeah i mean he's very thoughtful about the whole subject um so i had reached out to him initially because i met him through the big book of mars he was hugely helpful with that book and so he gave me his thoughts he actually had a great thought on roswell that's in the book which we can talk about as well but um just kind of got into his beliefs about like the idea of extraterrestrial intelligent life And uh, and he connected me to a few other scientists at SETI because he's associated with SETI. So I was able to speak with Seth uh, Shostak at SETI, which he was amazing. And and Jill Tarter, who's terrific. She's, you know, one of the um, helped get SETI off the ground at the very beginning. She's if anyone here has seen the movie Contact, Jodie Foster's character was based on Jill Tarter, So she was great to talk to. And she talked about, too, like the things happening now. She's like, I need more data. She's like, everything is so transient that we don't have enough data to to really learn anything yet. So I can't, I can't make any kind of, you know, uh, conclusion based on what's out there currently. Uh, so they take, you know, it's, a, it's taking a very scientific approach to it, which is, which is what they're supposed to do, right? That that's what science is, is collecting data and seeing what the data points to not trying to direct data to what you want it to be. Um, I reached out to a few others who were great and got right back to me. I mean, I was thrilled Avi Loeb got back to me through an introduction, um, which was great to speak with him. But when I went to uh, when I went to NASA, NASA Goddard, um, I had to go through their their head of um, communications. And uh, and so she checked out my background before she would let me talk to the scientists there, which was it was like, oh, OK, I didn't know I'd have to go through through a system to make sure I could speak to someone. But fortunately, she said, oh you know, I like what you do, like your writing, you know, and I can connect to you. But we have to make sure whenever the topic is UFOs that we record the conversations and we make sure that, you know, nothing is getting out there from our scientists that might reflect bad on them later and might misquote them or miss, um, you know, explain something uh, wrong that they're trying to say. So I worked closely with one of their scientists. I actually had him review what I wrote for his ideas uh, to make sure it was clear and it was accurate. So I, I felt good about that. But this particular scientist was talking about the idea of techno signatures, which I, I find really fascinating and i'll just try and describe that quickly but so there's there's biosignatures and there's technosignatures. biosignatures are uh, evidence that we might get from an atmosphere of, a, of an exoplanet that might set, say to us that there's some sort of biological uh creature on that planet that's you know emitting some sort of gas or whatever it might be in the atmosphere so you can say it's a biosignature evidence of, of some form of life a technosignature is evidence of some form of technology on the planet so technology that might be polluting something. So you can gather data on pollution in the atmosphere, which is something that the James Webb telescope is starting to should be able to do. Um, I don't know if it's come back with that yet offhand, but it's capable. And then there's another telescope that will follow James Webb, that can also detect other elements within the atmosphere without getting overly technical. Yeah. But basically, they can start to discover whether or not these, um, these elements that they're detecting in an atmosphere Could be created by technology versus other means uh and so that's that's a pretty fascinating way to look for life but as as they point out also we might find technology on an exoplanet but that doesn't mean that there's life on the planet necessarily and the evidence for that is is mars uh, is a great example there's technology there but no one's living there because we put it there Um, so it's kind of a fun question like we may find technology but We might not find life. And then the next question is, okay, well, where's the life to put it there? So the mystery just kind of goes on. But I love the fact that we're this close to being able to find that kind of information on exoplanets. Like that to me is awesome. So I feel like within our lifetime, we might get some real answers about something out there, whether or not that's coming here. I don't know if we'll find that out or not. But even if we know that there is something else out there somewhere, I find that incredibly exciting.
0: Yeah, I love the idea that we might find someone else's space junk or or rover yeah.
1: just sitting on another planet, and it's, ah,
0: who left that there? And like you say, <laughs> the questions that would open up are just absolutely immense. Um, right. Maybe someone's already sent their space junk here, and the, the likelihood is if something landed on this planet, it would land in the ocean, and we would never find it just because of the surface of the planet, the, the body being covered in so much water. And I believe from the statistics, if something did hit land, It would almost definitely hit desert because so few areas of the planet are actually populated. So, again, the likelihood is we wouldn't find it. So, yeah, we're we're so used to the planet being so small now, but really it's still
1: huge in that respect as well. So, that's a good point. And and even like just the idea of like the space chunk I mean, that's what that's really Avi Loeb's theory on Oumuamua. Oumuamua, yeah, from 2017, the thing that floated through the solar system. Uh, and he, his theory is because it, because the data we have on it doesn't reflect or align with anything that we're aware of comets, meteorites, whatever it is like, because it doesn't align with that. His thought is, well, maybe it's something else, hmm. um, as opposed to trying to force fit it into what we already know. Uh, and that's where he thought, well, maybe it's extraterrestrial, art, you know, alien architecture basically, or, or, um, yeah, just like a, a remnant left hmm. over that's passing through. So again, it's a it's a fascinating way to think. And when you open your mind to that way of thinking, then you can start to investigate and, and learn.
0: You mentioned an alternative theory or thinking to Roswell previously. Um yeah. what, do you want to go into that? Feel
1: free. Yeah, I thought I thought this was a really interesting theory. So when I when I talked again, his name is Pascal Lee. And when I talked to him, um, he offered to me, he said, Hey, I have this theory about Roswell, because I asked about his thoughts on on the topic, you know, as a whole. And uh, and because he's a scientist, you know, anything he writes has to be peer-reviewed. It's got to have data, of course. That's, you know, that's that world. So he said, I can't really write this up because, you know, I don't have any data. <laughs> it's just all all conjecture. But he said, but, you know, I can share it with you, and, and that's something that you can print. So I was like, oh, this is terrific. Please tell me. So his thought is is quite interesting. Basically, he's taking all the the lore that's out there about Roswell, And he has an explanation that would account for all that with within a more terrestrial explanation. So the government, of course, came out later and said Project Mogul was saying it was a high altitude spy balloon, right? Mm. So they were using some new materials. Mylar would have been a a pretty new material so the when they found like the foil and it felt different, it would be understandable that it wouldn't be recognizable to, to, to everybody who might encounter it. So. Of course, you know, we're trying to overlook, you know, look at what the Soviets are doing with their nuclear program and trying to make sure that they're, you know, they're not devising anything that's going to be a threat to us. So it's the Cold War. And so the idea of the high-altitude spy balloon certainly aligns with what was going on in the world. He thought that what might also be happening is they may have been testing um, the effects of high-altitude on uh with the biological response that might be so they may have been Mm -hmm. using monkeys to test yeah of course we were sending monkeys in the space um i found evidence of at least from early 48 of monkeys being sent up to space from new mexico in the area so who's to say it wasn't happening a little bit earlier just without being recorded or reported somewhere that i could at least i could find Um, not only might they have been testing biological responses but if they were doing that they'd have like the nodes all over their body to test The reactions so they would have shaved the monkey Mm -hmm. Um, so the monkey would have been gray skinned a large head you know long limbs and and rather short like child-sized yeah he also thought they might be training them to take pictures over the soviets so at that time you didn't have like a remote camera you know that stuff wasn't we don't have that 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 technology yet so they would train monkeys like push a button and you get like a banana like a chip as a as a treat right so they may have been training them to do that as well. So we're going to fly the balloon up. We're going to test the biological responses on monkeys. And they're going to take pictures over the over Moscow for us. And then, of course, something crashes. Um, it went awry and bodies are found. And from a distance, one might say, I saw a weird, grave, small, childlike body with long limbs and a big head. And you can see how everything just kind of fits together with that explanation from there. So I thought that was I thought that was an interesting way to look at that I had not come across anywhere else. I've I've heard a few similar. Uh, I've heard the more horrific one where it was actual
0: radiated bodies of children or or captivated prisoners of war things like that. I still feel there's a huge element, and this is the issue with Roswell. I've said before it happened so long ago, and like you say, there's a lack of data. What you have at this point is stories passed on through generations because not only are the people who are present long passed away their grandchildren are now passed away so it's it's you know has stories handed down personally I think it was still something a little bit more especially with the the, the material one thing yes experimental materials but if it's true that he crushed that up and it folded back out perfectly and had that kind of bluish glow to it But is that a case of that something that was added to a story later? Who knows? But Roswell, it's one of those. I don't think we'll ever find out necessarily what happened at Roswell. Even if and when we get some sort of confirmation of a non-human intelligence, it just happened too long ago and was maybe too much of a cover-up. But it's a fascinating story and no doubt there's still aspects, like you say to it, that we we don't understand. I would love to ask you though, Mark, in writing the book is there is there one particular case or piece of evidence you came across whether it's in the book or not that you really thought wow that's that for you is what you would tell folks not interested in the ufo subject that this is the best thing i've seen the best thing i've heard the most compelling case
1: i mean there there's a few i think um just to start, like I think I certainly do think the cur- the recent UAP sightings by the Navy pilots is to me hugely compelling because these are guys I, I don't know why they would make any of this stuff up. These are mm-hmm. guys highly skilled in very expensive equipment, so I, I find that really very compelling. But, but that's I think that's something that's well known out there. So, a few more lesser known, well, at least one lesser known one from the book for sure. There's one story I wrote about from uh, the 70s. Uh, it took place in Lumberton, North Carolina. And it's it's an amazing story of a triangular UFO that was spotted. And what I particularly love about this story is that it was a friend of mine who witnessed it. Um, it was a guy named Lee Spiegel, who's a huge name in the mm. UFO community. Sally just passed away in August, which was, did, yeah. which was so awful. But Lee's, Lee's an old friend of mine, and he was hugely helpful um, in this book. And so in the 70s, he was working with J. Allen Hynek, uh, who was, had CUFOS at, started Kufos at, at that time. And this sighting happened in North Carolina, and Hynek couldn't go. He sent Lee Spiegel down, and Lee goes down there, and he meets with the, the police chief, and they start following some of the sightings, um, the reports they're hearing. They're not seeing anything. But then finally they do, and they pull off the side of the road, and they see this triangular UFO that's like treetop level high and lights and everything, perfectly silent. Shoots a beam down at their feet. Um, there's a story that I think that happened. Another officer elsewhere had the the beam react to his headlights, like flash headlights twice. The beam came down twice, like mimicking it. And they and then it took off, just zipped off perfectly quietly. They tried to chase it, but they lost it. And uh, you know, Lee's a guy I know. Like I said, personally, I so it, to me it was a little bit different to know someone who's personally had an experience versus yeah. The stories you hear from people, you you know, you don't quite know, but I know Lee and I don't see him as a guy who's just making stuff up. Um, so to me, that was extra in- intriguing because he also researched it. It's not like he just saw it and then he went back to, to Heineken. He, he researched the whole thing. He checked in with the, the local Air Force bases to see like, were you testing something? Um, was there a pilot in this area? Was there a, a different kind of aircraft that we may have seen? And nothing they got from the Air, Air Force bases lined up with anything that they saw timing wise or equipment wise or anything like that. So it's one of those cases that was never explained. And it was multiple witnesses, you know, again, police chief. I think there were a few other police officers with Lee and the, the chief as well. So it wasn't just like one guy who saw something and then report it later. It's multiple people who saw something, no explanation at all. Um, and so to me, that was that was a really interesting case to, to be able to share. And it gets more details in the book. And then along those lines, um, another a fairly well-known one uh, is the Phoenix Lights in 1997, which sounds very similar to what Lee experienced, but was seen by 20,000 people, including the governor, who, although he at first kind of mocked the whole thing, which I talked about that in the book, but he later came out and said, no, I I did see it. I don't know what it was. And I, I believe he'll say that to this day. Yeah. And I actually found out after the fact that a uh, a friend of mine um, sent me a note saying that she was actually there at the time and she saw it as well. And so you have these triangular craft again going over Phoenix and in a much broader area as well by the way. But seen by tons of people said to be physical quiet triangular lights just going by. Actually talked about Kurt Russell saw it in a uh, private plane that he was flying. He did, yeah. about his his uh, experience with that as well. And again you have like the local Air Force base. They talked about dropping flares around that time but that doesn't align either with what people experienced. I think people would know the difference between flares dropping and a very even um, sighting of, of a triangular craft. So that's another one that really doesn't have an explanation to this day, um, which I find pretty fascinating. I don't know why someone would test something and never say anything about it, especially this long after the fact. So uh, I don't know. Those are those are a few I think examples that I was especially intrigued by.
0: I've said many times I'm a huge <laughs> fan of the, the Phoenix Lights event because the frustration is it was so close to us having camera phones and that kind of digital product on us, but it was just a couple of years still outside of that purview. However, I think if you go back historically, you're you would have a really good level of satellite technology, radar tech, various sensors that should and could and probably did Pick something up in that area. So, if you were a, a UAP task force or an Arrow organization now, who's looking back historically, nineteen forty-seven is a pretty long way to go back, but nineteen ninety-seven isn't that far, and the records would be digitized. the The tape would be there, audio, written records. People are still alive from that, so. I always hold out hope that's one that someday we can we can get a little bit more from. But I'm a I'm a huge advocate for that being a pretty monumental sighting.
1: Yeah, no, that would be amazing to see if there's some data about from satellites or like you said that could give us a little bit more light on that subject. That would be fascinating to find out. I I, yeah. I
0: would put money on the fact that there is, and uh, yeah, we'll see if that comes out in the the light of day. Conversely to what I asked there about your, your favorite case or the most compelling, is there an element of the UFO topic, this phenomenon that you study, but you just can't quite get into it? Is there something you think, even for you, it's part of UFO lore, part of UFO myth,
1: but it's just too far? Um, well, I mean... Certainly, I think that you know the contactees is a little ridiculous. We talked about that. <laughs> what what element I,
0: of it though? For you, what what is it about contactees that you think is too much? Is, yeah, is it an element? Is it the whole thing? Is it a part of the story?
1: Oh, I think I think just the idea that that uh, that, that they flew into spaceships and they met with the Venusians who looked just like us. It, to me, that's that's a little uh, a little much. But I think. Um, I kind of struggle a little bit with the, you know, some of the time travel theories. Okay. Um, I, I find that interesting that certainly that like, could it be us is a really fascinating topic. Somehow it's hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that time travel could be possible to make that an answer. Mm-hmm. And, and that comes up a little bit in the random first four story story mm. uh, in kind of a, kind of a wacky way. Um, so, so that was one I thought was maybe a, a, a bit of a reach, but I, I think I, for me at least, it's easier for my head to wrap my head around the idea that an intelligent civilization could exist on one of these exoplanets. It's in the Goldilocks zone where it could it could thrive like we did. It has the conditions to thrive into intelligent creatures that can think and they can see the universe around it and, and then you know figure out how to transport itself from one end of it to another it's easier for me to accept that than like we can travel through time. I just, that's just, I guess maybe a personal thing, but it's harder for me to see how that could work.
0: I get that. I've just had Michael masters on a couple of times on the podcast and his theory is the prevailing future human theory that it's not time travel in the sense of back to the future, which he hates because he doesn't like the way back to the future portrays time travel. Uh, He thinks it's ruined it a bit, but he explains it far more scientifically But do you think that's one of the reasons the general public at large struggle with that sort of idea that maybe it's not as simple as something comes from a different planet to here? That's a very simple way to understand it. Something's got a better technology than us. It can travel here from really far away. And for them, it's maybe not that far. But the idea that it's something coming from a future, an alternative timeline, a different dimension, is that not
1: only harder to understand, but pretty scary and daunting <laughs> maybe maybe both of the, both of those actually yeah i mean i think it's a little hard to understand i mean there is the idea of another dimension is interesting and i i like like where jacques valet has gone with that topic in the, in the past mm. um i touched on it a little bit in the book yeah. the idea of all these sort of odd um experiences with other creatures whether it's aliens or ghosts or whatever might be another dimension and and who's to say like i mean that that does seem possible. I mean, there's, there's so much, I feel like we still don't know about our own planet um, that maybe there are answers. that are still local to, to this world as opposed to another. And so, you know, I spoke with Lou Elizondo and he kind of talked about that a little bit. He talked about like how the role of like, you know, fungi was like a whole, a whole world that was unknown Mm -hmm. for a while, you know? And, there's like a whole thing of like microorganisms, you know, there's like a whole world that's right under our our noses that we didn't know about for so long. Uh, but there it is. So could, could there be something else like that? We just haven't discovered yet that exists within our own world. And, And, you know, that's, that's quite possible. That's, it's one of those things like we, this kind of goes along with the idea of, um, distance as well with, with, you know, other, other worlds within this galaxy, but, or other galaxies, but we can't be so arrogant to think that we know everything there is to know right now. There's so much more we can learn. Um, and that, I always, I always wonder like what people thought, you know, a hundred years ago, they probably thought, wow, we, we know a lot, you know, never imagined that we'd be doing what you and I are doing right now. Um, so how much more of that is there still to uncover and learn about ourselves and maybe even within our own minds, um, projecting things or experiencing things. I, I don't know. I But part of what's fun about this whole subject is that mystery is still out there, and uh, we just hope to get closer and closer to some answers.
0: Well, I had a few more questions, but I've got listener questions to go over, and some of those touch on what I would have asked you anyway. So I'll get to the listener questions, Mark, to finish off, if that's good with you. Um, first up from Smartian, he asks, he would be interested to know your general hypothesis for the UFO phenomenon. Or if you're not sure on one, what you think this might be, some different speculations you might have. Oh, man.
1: That's that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have one thought that I, I think explains it. I mean, I think, I guess I would say two things. One is like there's something else here that we haven't learned about, like we just kind of talked about. And maybe that's just within the world of physics itself um Mm -hmm. i talked about briefly like in the in the book uh there's something and actually nasa just talked about this at their at their um briefing last last month i believe it was early september uh where there's things like sprites and elves which is lightning that kind of shoots up from clouds and we didn't know about that for a long time and pilots would report seeing things above the clouds we learned what that was that there was this other weather phenomenon that was just unknown to us until we had satellites like that could look down and see that Mm -hmm. And so we learn something new when those reports um, come to an end. So is there something else like that in our universe that we just haven't learned about yet that might be some kind of explanation? That's interesting to me. I, I am intrigued by the idea that something else could be out there on one of these exoplanets that has managed to survive um, a civilization that's gone beyond ours and began earlier. So it's evolved, you know, way past where we are now. And maybe they did find a way to make it here when you start to go down that line of thinking, it's easy to say that we haven't found evidence of them because if they're not good to get you know, that intelligent to get here, they're intelligent enough to stay hidden if they want to. So that's, that's an intriguing thought. Um I kind of like to think that, you know, if they did get here, they would make it known. <laughs> so everyone yeah. could know, but uh, I'm also kind of relieved that we are, if that's the case, the fact that we're here still uh, is a good sign that, that whatever their intent is, it seems to be a good one uh, because otherwise we would certainly be gone by now. (laughs) So um, yeah, I don't know. I hope that kind of answers the question. It's, it's a good question. It's hard to kind of nail one down. I think it does. And I've,
0: I've said, Mark, my opinion's quite fluid on it. And I think that's a good way to be in this topic and not nail your colors too much to the mast. I like the idea that maybe it's something a bit closer to home. And uh, if people haven't seen the movie, the abyss from James Cameron, I don't think that's a million miles from maybe something that might be going on. Something's here. We just can't see it. The ocean's a very big place and almost a whole other planet that we've not explored at the Mm -hmm. minute. So um, yeah, fascinating to discuss as well. Um, Michael Ashworth asks, um, let's see what hypotheses are because the real big questions are, who are they? What's their agenda? But also he asks, and you've covered those within the previous question, do you think there's any chance that this non-human intelligence could be a very advanced AI?
1: Ooh. (laughs) Well, that's a good question. I mean, certainly you got to think that if something's coming, it could just be controlled by AI, right? I mean, that's basically what we're doing with the the rovers on Mars, right? We're Mm -hmm. controlling them from here. Um, And there's AI integrated into those. So that certainly would make sense to some degree that if they're intelligent enough to send something here, they could have AI to kind of run it and control it. What I would like to think is that there's something on the other side of AI as well, and it's not just purely AI. Uh, that's that's a little scary and disturbing because um, it feels a little a little close to home where we might be finding ourselves too soon if things get out of control. Uh, so, yeah, I that's an interesting thought. Could could be some degree of that, at least. A question from Hamish, he asks,
0: do you think that there, there is anything to various different neurodivergent uh, conditions, such as autism, that could have anything to do with people's experiences? And that's not that they're making them up, but just that people's brainwave or brain functions being different could be what could attract some sort of other
1: experience. I, I, I do, actually. Um I find autism to be really quite fascinating because it shows that the brain can do things that we typically can't conceive that it could do. Um, you see that with like the guys who do like huge math equations, right? Like multiply eight digit numbers like that, um, faster than you can type it into a calculator and I can't process how that's possible. Like I just can't, I don't know how that works. Um, I actually just, uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going off topic for no just no, a second. Hmm. but I actually just in my my day jobs in advertising and uh, we just did some some videos for a client where we used a guy who has um, autism. His name is Max Park. He's a, the world's fastest Rubik's cube solver. We I just was just about record. to mention that to
0: you that I saw a yeah. video of a kid actually it was juggling Rubik's cubes. And he was solving them as he juggled them. And I just thought like you say, I, <laughs> oh, I think come... I've seen that too. There's there's one having a skill, but being able to compute what must be going yes. through your head as you do that is just otherworldly. Yeah, yeah. I get you. Sorry to interrupt.
1: No, this guy Max did it in three point three seconds. When we filmed them for the for this ad, he did four of them within thirty seconds. Picking them up, that's it includes time to pick it up, look at it, and then phew, done. Yeah. And again, my my brain can't process how that's possible. So I guess what I'm getting at here in a very long winded way is, uh, one, maybe there's something, um, like the, 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 uh, listener asked that is being picked up by another intelligence that, um, is able to communicate, or does it come back to what we were talking about before of it being something more to this world that is just unknown within the brain itself? Are there different ways the brain might work that might project these kinds of images that said, I can see how that could explain certain cases, um, but not but not all. Like that, to me, doesn't answer the Phoenix Lights at all. Mm. But there's there's another interesting thing around this topic. I wrote about this in Chasing Ghost. Um, there was an experiment done by a professor in Canada, uh, his name is Michael Persinger, who was looking at um, electromagnetic waves and how that can affect the brain. And he had a thing called the God Helmet, put this helmet on people. And would kind of dial up and down the amount of uh, uh, electromagnetic waves that were going into the temporal lobes of the brain mm-hmm. and have complete sensory deprivation while this was happening. I'm just doing this as a quick nutshell. But people were seeing all kinds of things. They were experiencing ghosts, which is why I was in that book, um, God, which is why it's called the God Helmet, and UFOs and aliens. So, are there certain things that might be hitting our brains that are causing people to have certain experiences? I don't know, but I find that a fascinating possibility that that might explain some things but again not all and the idea of ghosts
0: mystery alive yeah yeah and ghost, gods angels demons aliens ufos is it just different labels for the same thing and that's just a phenomenon that's how it's
1: understood yeah. so well, um, you know and to touching on that really quick i because i meant we talked briefly about the fact i had an ancient section the bible stuff i always find it interesting when people will be religious and believe in God and angels and the, and the existence of that, but not the possibility of UFOs or aliens. Like to mm-hmm. me, it's like, isn't it just vernacular, like terminology? I mean, <laughs> how can, how can one exist, but the other couldn't possibly exist? Like to me, that doesn't make sense at all. So again, it, to me that if you accept this, you got to accept this too, that the possibility I, of it.
0: Yeah. It's mean, just, terminology like alien spacecraft and whatnot for for words we didn't have back 2000 years ago and they used angels demons fiery chariots in the sky yeah. you know all those types of things how the was it romans um, burning shields in the yes, sky because right, there was right. no flying saucer there was no spacecraft there was nothing yeah. interdimensional being wasn't you, in the vernacular yeah you use the words that you've got
1: you yep. know to
0: yeah there was no word for blue once to describe the sea. It was uh, described as silver, I believe. Um, so that's that's just oh, the time and what you go with. So, But listen, Mark, uh, we're running out of time with yourself. And uh, just before we finish off, how can people get in touch with you and also find your
1: work as well? The book should be available wherever you buy books. Um, go to Amazon, Barnes Noble, uh, bookshop.org. Hopefully your local bookstore should have it. And you can find me. Um, I have a site, markhartsmanbooks.com. Mark with a C. And you can find me on Instagram at Mark Hartsman, just all together. On Twitter also at Mark Hartsman. And I post quite a bit, uh, mostly on, mostly on Instagram, actually
0: awesome um i've tagged you on a tweet to see i was recording so i managed to find you on twitter as well or x as the cool kids call it yeah i can't i'm not used to saying that yet (laughs) no it's so it's so hard to say Um, and listen the book to give it its full title we've got we are not alone the extraordinary history of ufos and aliens invading our hopes fears and fantasies mark i genuinely enjoyed it it's one of the best looking books i've seen and i 100% am ordering the hardcover and i love a hardcover copy of a book there's not enough of them about these days either so thank you very much for time, Mark, and it was lovely speaking with you. Thanks so much, Andy. Really appreciate it. Good talking with you. That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show out on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad free and sponsor free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium, YouTube, you can sign up and be a member, or you can do that through Patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening, folks.
1: It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubbub designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the parliament The little fucker hovered right inside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his end.